Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I think I will, actually. Go on. Can I start? I'm going to start for a little bit. I was just reading it on the tube. I'm going to read a bit. I'll read it to you. And in the book, um, there's a marvellous section, which I'm going to read to you, which is so familiar to anybody who's... And everybody has done this. Everybody's tried to write an essay at school Mm -hmm. about the group that they're most passionate about. And our hero, Philip, I think, enters uh, this piece, and this is the first two paragraphs for the school magazine, and it goes, this is so well written, it's so funny. It just goes, um, Tales from Topographic Oceans is the fifth album from Yes, without doubt the most musically talented and advanced group in Britain today, if not the world. Without doubt, this is their masterpiece. The concept behind the album was created by John Anderson. Yes, he's brilliant lead singer and songwriter. Hailing from Accrington Lanks, hailing from his great active Anderson has always had an affinity with Eastern spiritualism and philosophy. Inspired by Paramhansa Yoganda's autobiography of a yogi, brackets, nothing to do with Jellystone National Park, exclamation mark. The album is a double album with four sides, each containing only one long song, comprising four long songs in total. The shortest of these is 18 minutes 34 seconds while the longest is 21 minutes 35 seconds long. That's important. That's very important. It's absolutely crucial. All all teenage, all teenage boys interested in prog. This is a key thing. And he goes on to say only Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells has longer pieces of music (laughs) on each side to the best of my knowledge but this album has four whereas Tubular Bells has only two. (laughs) Isn't that perfect? It is. And this is, this is, in fact, we'll actually explain, I'm, I am talking to the author, of course, Jonathan Coe. And if you'd read Rotter's Club, whenever it came out, a while ago now, actually, you will remember. This Ten years ago not, now, yeah. Yeah, it's Ten years ago. full of yeah. wonderful rock and roll references. Now, would, would that be Philip in this book? I suspect it would be, you were born, I think, in around 61, was it? 61, exactly. So would, would this be, were you too as obsessed with, with, uh, with, with Yes, and I know you were with Hackney <laughs> North, because that's, in fact, uh, uh, the Rotter's Club is the title of one of their tracks, isn't it? Yeah, uh, one of their albums. Um, their albums. Well, first of all, can I just say that uh, I was chuckling away when you were reading that. I haven't read this book or really kind of looked at it for ten years, and that's a very funny passage in your in your rendition. <laughs> we should have we should have got you to do the audio book. You're, you're, you're the perfect, uh, perfect performer. Sort of, yeah, swatty student voice, which is like yes. So we slightly can't quite pronounce the R's, you know, fairly yeah. exciting, you know. <laughs> but it's brilliant because teenage boys at that age just are the the the. the concept of yes yeah. is actually more important really than the music it's the idea yeah. that the songs are so long I was yeah. the same I had, a, I had a soft machine record which had 
had four tracks on double yes, album. Moon in Tune and you know, uh, yes. of course you do. Soft Machine Three, Soft Machine Three, the the third, two, two sides, yeah, four tracks. Do the math. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Phil, Phil is probably wrong in his assessment of the uh, of Tales from Topographic Oceans. Next, actually, because maybe Soft Machine Third. Has longer tracks. It may well. I'm sure, do. your listeners will be able to. And we, uh, they will do. Please do point direct us about that. But I suppose the. Uh, I mean, what what that makes me remember is that if to simplify things completely, if 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 you imagine a classroom divided up into two camps, say 1976, a bit later than that uh, piece. So you've got the you've got the the punk, uh, the punk aficionados in one on one side who are just kind of getting into that new music. Then you've got the Yes and Genesis fans on the other side who are discussing which album has the longest tracks which is maybe, a great maybe, division maybe maybe uh, foxtrot what is it supper's ready maybe that's longer than any of the tracks on could there. be absolutely yeah, it could be uh okay so i'm the boy kind of standing in the corner kind of wishing a plague on both your houses and thinking that actually he's superior to both of them because i'm because i'm into kind of henry cow who are far you know who are more musically complex even than yes and more kind of radical politically than punk, so I, I feel that I'm the kind of... That's you know, a brilliant position to take up, of course. Well, it's, it's very lonely. Position, superior. Very, very, very lonely. lonely. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what, were there anyone else, was anyone else in your gang? Uh, not really. No, not really, I don't think. Um, I mean, were you going to school with a satchel with the words Peter Blegvad written on them, <laughs> who I think was a member of Henry Cav, and everybody was a member of Henry Cav. Everybody Fred was a Frith. at some point. Uh, Fred Frith was a big hero, yes. So there weren't many people, you know, in, in the arguments at, in the classroom about who was the greatest guitarist. Was it Steve Howe? Was it uh, John Paul Jones or whatever? Uh, the name Fred Frith didn't really, didn't very often come <laughs> up, but it, but it would have done if I'd, uh, if I'd joined in, probably, because that would have been the name I would have pitched in with. Why so, did you like those groups? Because uh, I never get tired of hearing about people's uh, ob- obsessions. And, yeah. uh, and it doesn't really matter who they're obsessed with. I just approve of the idea of being obsessed. Yeah. So Henry Cow, I, 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 I remember I'd never felt that strongly about him. But what, what was it about them that you liked so much? Uh, I th- yeah. You know, I was thinking uh, as preparation for coming in and, uh, and doing this podcast about my musical journey. And it was quite, quite a weird one, actually. And I'll tell you who to point actually the finger of blame at for all my you know the fact that my musical interest took this weird byway uh and it's jeff lynn actually oh right that's that is the weird thing of elo of elo because when i first records i bought were were rock and roll when i was about 11 or so i i had slightly retro tastes and i was buying compilation albums by bill haley and chuck berry and people like this and i liked just kind of you know three chord rock and roll songs that's a peculiar thing to be doing at the time yeah it is slightly but peculiar. why would you have not been looking at the the present the present was so exciting at that the time. present was exciting well I, I i must have bought electric warrior at the same time the same year that i, bought, ah, so right. I was buying that stuff. okay so, so that's so a, there's a kind of, con- kind of con- continuum there but then ELO did their cover of Roll Over Beethoven, which I already I really liked the song because I knew the Chuck Berry version, and uh, and that made me buy or encouraged me to buy ELO too, which as uh, as anybody who knows the early work of ELO will attest, is a diehard prog rock album with only five tracks, the longest Kiyama being oh, more I think than you'll follow clocking only in five tracks, <laughs> clocking, <laughs> clocking in more than eleven minutes. <laughs> And uh, that was my undoing, that album, because I suddenly thought, no, we don't want this three chords, two and a half minutes. We want, you know, we want riffs in 7-4, and we want cellos and violins and all this kind of stuff. And that's, that's what, of course, Jeff Lynne ditched all that stuff almost immediately and went on to become a, a pop, a great pop writer. Riffs in 7-4 is so well put. 
Because <laughs> I, I really remember that as well. At school, it was terrible. But Stuart McConey is brilliant on this subject. Uh, the, the awful superiority that mm. you felt by liking music was in 7-4 yeah, yeah. as opposed to 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. That somehow just put you on a kind of intellectual level yeah. above everybody else. Yeah. And so there you were in the corner of the, of, of the classroom, um, looking down. Yeah, uh, rather condescendingly. <laughs> at well, the Adam and the Ants fans. Stuart still likes all this kind of music. He does. I mean, and if the Freak Zone had existed in uh, in, 19, in the nineteen seventies, I would have been in heaven. But of course, absolutely, we did have shows like that. Uh, I mean, people forget that John Peel actually played a lot of this kind of music. Uh, he, uh, I mean, he played a lot of right up till the late seventies. He was playing, huge amount. He was playing Henry Cow and Gentle Giant and Caravan and stuff like this, along with you know. All it's the punk not stuff until he heard more. the Ramones did he suddenly. He um, didn't even. He didn't stop suddenly then either. I mean, I think he he, he kept on playing it, was it all through the seventies. Yeah, wasn't gradual, I mean, after the eighties, he was very embarrassed. About People it. think that you know, uh, never mind the bollocks came out and that was it. Everything everything changed. But it was a much more gradual and seamless process than that. So we had his show. We had uh, Alan Freeman's Saturday show yep. on, a, on a Saturday afternoon. Essential listening with all those weird kind of classical jingles that he used to drop in. That's right. <laughs> and uh, a weird show which I used to love called Sounds Interesting with Derek Jewell. Does anyone remember? I this, remember this, that this show. This I don't remember it was on that. Radio Three. It was Radio Three's only toe dipping into uh, into pop music. That's and this guy a... had a very very posh voice. And uh, you know he, you know the new the new Genesis album or something would be a big feature. He would probably play the whole thing. But the whole time, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd imagine so. God bless Derek. <laughs> Where would we be? With that? Again, the idea. I think he did have quite a plumby voice, and also it sounds interesting. Mm. It's one of those wonderful sort of archaic old BBC yes. names, isn't it? You know, yeah, it's like absolutely. pop. Look and listen. You know those kind of things. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so what were the absolute? Which were the records you were most? Most obsessed with. I mean, did you have, uh, did you ever sort of stick up on your bread, bedroom wall a, a cover or a, a, are there any posters, in fact? Any posters? Let me think. Uh, I was pretty obsessed. Here's, here's a word which, here's a name which uh, you probably won't recognise, but some of the listeners might. Bo Hansen. Bo Hansen, the Swedish Gosh, keyboard player who did, who did an album called Music Inspired by Lord of the Rings. Now, of course, we all read Lord of the Rings at the time. That was we our, did. That was our Bible. We did. And uh, he did this uh, this instrumental concept album released on the uh, the famous Charisma label in uh, 72, 73, I think. And uh, that was that was one of my obsessions. I listened to that endlessly and all his other records, which nobody apart from me bought, I don't think. And uh, poor old Bo died last year, I found. And not a single obituary in not the National Papers, obituary. which I think was a bit... Not a uh, single flag at half-mast. No, apart from, <laughs> apart the from in the co-household, yes. yeah, yeah, where, where we all wore black I noticed that we all wore exactly. <laughs> I noticed there's a, there's a kind of keyboard uh, pattern emerging to your appreciation mm. of rock music. It's mostly... Uh, and you are a keyboard player yourself. I am a keyboard player, but... But uh, guitar was my first instrument, as oh, as, right. as it has to be, I suppose. Everyone starts by uh, getting their first electric guitar or something, around about the age of 10 or 11, I think I was, when I got mine. So we were going to come to, in a minute, to the, to the group that you formed at college, and in fact reformed now and done some recordings. But but presumably before that, there were, there, there were other bands. What, what names did they have, your, your early bands? Um, I, don't think there were, I don't think there were any other bands before We went straight into the peer group. Um... Because of this this lonely position, I I found myself in a school which I described, <laughs> which I described to you. I mean, there is a scene in the Ross solo artist. There is a scene in the Ross Club, a rather tragic comic scene, where Benjamin and Philip form their kind of progressive concept album band, and uh, the drummer and the bass player rebel in mid rehearsal and kind of kick the instruments over, 
and turn into a punk band kind of in mid in mid song basically brilliant uh, and that is At almost the speed at which things can happen in documentaries yes brilliant. <laughs> that's almost a kind of flight of fantasy on my part because I never you know we I never even got as far as forming that uh, that um, that ri- ridiculous uh, progressive kind of band that, that they do. So I used to do solo recordings when I was uh, when I was at school. I used to have a very primitive overdub technique, which involved recording backing tracks onto a tape recorder, and then just playing back with them and recording that onto another tape recorder, and then bouncing it backwards and forwards. And each time you recorded it, the quality would, would depreciate. Well, yeah, more and more hiss. Just hiss. Yes, and it's basically just, just hiss. It makes you sound like somebody behind a distant rubber mattress <laughs> <Yes>. underwater. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right. How very devoted. So everyone else has got got their best, but you're 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 on your own overdubbing. Yeah, I think hugely I, I complicated. Probably seven four keyboard parts. I, think I saw myself as Mike Oldfield at that point. Yes, I was, I was probably doing kind of tubular bells two, three, and four in my head. That's probably what what that was about. Absolutely. Yeah. And the terrifying thing about Mark Oldfield, of course, at the time was he was only seventeen or something. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think he's. You know, I remember the t- buying the records and thinking he was only just a tiny bit older than me. It's yeah, appallingly uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a, a prodigious talent, you know. <laughs> but the peer group is the group that you formed. I think when you were at Cambridge, were you at Trinity College, Cambridge. Uh, it was after I left Cambridge. Actually, it was when I was a postgrad at uh, Warwick University. Oh right, yeah. Which I'm um, Fraser and I were discussing this yesterday. Actually, a very good name for a band, the Peer Group. I think so. Yeah. We, I mean, there was a lot of there was a, uh, lots of bands called the Elastic Band, weren't there, and the T Set, and whatever mm. kind of facetious send up. Well, I think my memory but the is Peer Group is actually quite a good name. I think my memory is that the Monochrome Set was the inspiration for the for the band name because we liked the idea that uh, you know the second the second word in the band's name could mean group or band or something like that. Yes, the Monochrome Set, which I always thought was a very clever, very very, very clever name. And uh, they just reformed, I noticed, uh, two, uh, God 2011. Bless so, uh, yeah, God bless every, them. Leicester Square on Leicester Square, uh, guitar, of guitar, course. Bid, bid on lead vocals. I think on vocals. Songwriting, yep. Andy Warren was a member at one stage, yep. I think, went on to be yep. in the Ants. Yep. St- Fraser stops at any point. Oh, no, you carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Leicester Square, again, Leicester Square, underrated name for that's a pop. That's a fantastic name, actually. Superb yeah. name. Yeah. The monochrome set, uh, phrase, I think one must remind us, had a song, you know, a lot like the monkeys, had a song, Hey, Hey, with the monkeys, and um, the soft boys had Give It to the Soft Boys. They had a song called The Monochrome Set, mm. which was their opening track, in which two members of the group simply sang the backing vocal on the word the. So mm. Bid would go, monochrome set, and the others would go, the, didn't they? Do you remember? It was abs- <laughs> I used to think it was absolutely, I probably, maybe you and I were at the same monochrome set concert. It's quite possible. I never saw them live, so, uh, so I don't think so, but, but they I were wish tri- I had. Oh, they I were had. terrific, yeah. terrific. Yeah. But you formed them, so the group was, I think, apart from a Smith song you once told me, I think there was a, which, which Smith song did you cover? Oh, we covered uh, This Charming Man. Rather, uh, rather rin- winsome lyrical sort of version. Very difficult song to play. Uh, yeah, very a lot of a lot of chord changes. Very very enormously quick. difficult. Yeah, and a very difficult guitar part, which luckily I wasn't having to uh, to handle. But no. Um, yeah, in fact, I don't know if there are. Any At what point in the set the, uh, was that? Was that was that the final? So we'll leave you this with this one. <laughs> the final big dance number. I can't. I I don't remember now. I don't remember now. I don't think it was our final number. But we started. Uh, you know, I, I tried to start it as a as a prog band, really, I suppose, because we mainly did instrumentals, and we did our keynote song was in seven four and lasted keynote nine minutes. So even the concept of a keynote <laughs> song is exciting. <laughs> what was it called? Oh. See, that's that's another good indication of what music sounds like. It's just hearing the titles. Can you remember the titles of any of these songs? 
the song, the long song in seven four, was called Juliet and the China Men. Excellent. Um, Excellent. But uh, our, tit- like our, tit- our titles weren't very proggy. We had a song. We had a we had a track called I Would If I Could, But I Can't. I remember, which is a, I think is a distant memory of some joke we used to tell in the playground, where the punchline was I Would If I Could, But I Can't. Yes. But uh, but I don't remember that. But but anyway, the the other members of the band, rather in in the way that happens in the Rogers Club, although although over a period of months rather than uh, minutes, they rebelled against this nonsense, and we started having more and more vocals and shorter and shorter songs, and the other members of the band started writing more, and uh, we turned into a into a song a song outfit rather than an instrumental outfit. And you wrote the, the music and words, or just just the music? Just it? the music. Just I can't. Um, Why didn't you write the words? Because we'll get onto the reform group in a moment. I notice you don't write the words in the reform group. You would think that the one person, one group member, the man who's written nine novels, uh, would probably be the man who should be pulling out the goose quill. Well, not not really because you know nine novels, some of which clock in at about five hundred pages. So that's that's how long it takes me to say what I to say what I want to say really. And if you've only got three and a half minutes and two verses and a chorus, then I'm a bit stumped, actually. Oh, right. I find brevity, it brevity and is not, focus and is not, uh, not, not my thing. <laughs> not my thing. Um, I have written lyrics. Uh, I've got a, a very good friend who's a wonderful uh, singer-songwriter, Louis Philippe, who used to record for the L label in the uh, You've recorded the 80s. with him, actually, haven't you? I, think. I've re- I did an album with him of, my, of readings from my books uh, with his music in the background. That came out on a French label in the early... 2000s called Ninth and Thirteenth, and uh, I've written some lyrics for some of his songs, and I've written some lyrics for Richard Sinclair, who used to sing with Caravan. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. But uh, but you know it doesn't come easily to me at all, and I, I don't think they were any of these lyrics were particularly successful. So but I'm, you so think that prog, if it was a prog group, which it obviously was, yeah, uh, prog would be the easiest of lyrics to write if you didn't, if brevity didn't suit you. Yeah, but because prog, prog lyrics are, are almost universally terrible, aren't they? I mean, that's a, good, that's <laughs> a good subject. Now, that is a good subject. We had this discussion only the other day in the Word Office. Oh, the, the banter. <laughs> Talking about the record Fragile by Yes. Mm-hmm. And is it the track Roundabout? I think it is. Do you remember? And... Uh, whether or not John Anderson could only write about d- d- nebulous concepts like well, clouds and yes, uh, good, good, golden dogs. Good question. Did any, of the, did any of those prog bands ever write about feelings, in fact? Is there a prog love song? It's, it's, there aren't many. I don't think there are. I think they're mostly just uh, really uh, woolly sense impressions yeah. of yeah. A, a fabulous utopia yes. that you would <laughs> enter to escape the drudgery of normal life. Yeah. A lot of John Anderson's were about love, but it's a big kind of universal concept, I guess, weren't they? Uh, it was individual that, precisely that. That it was about the 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 the, the, the overall concept of love. Not um, I broke up with um, with uh, Rosie on Tuesday. In the pub, no. And I'm heartbroken. If we loved each other, we could heal the world. And we could heal the, the world and ourselves and live mm-hmm. on a cloud, yeah, probably, and be served drinks by a unicorn. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> and nothing, nothing's wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. Sounds terrific. Actually. Is this, is this why it's such a male genre? Do you think that uh, you know there are not many female prog fans? Well, I, that's is, this, a... is this the same reason that 
mainly it's men who read kind of fantasy novels and and this kind of thing. I think so. There's a very good piece actually, which I shall plug now. Actually, in the current edition of the word, isn't the new edition, isn't it? Sarah Dempster's pieces. Uh, yes. Uh, Sarah Dempster is a, a, an absolute prog obsessive. I know she she did an interview with me. Oh, did you about my book? So did a she couple, for you? I think a couple of years ago, and uh, I was delighted to find she, that she. she uh, so of course it was absolutely. She uh, she she knows all this stuff backwards. She she I, mean, I was really impressed, and she liked uh, of many aspects of prog. She liked the pretension. Mm. She found that intensely attractive. I think she thought that the kind of prosaic world of blokes with leather jackets, stubble, pints of beer, it just wasn't very romantic and she just loved this idea of this sort of the whole thing is just a great sort of meringue of ridiculousness that you could just <laughs> dive into. And it was all kind of pink and fluffy and mm. candy floss and uh, nonsensical. And I, I, I was very... This is a terrific piece actually, current issue. And anyone listening who hasn't read it, I would direct them to it. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. But so the peer group, would you just explain firstly that the group have, of course, reformed? This is the band from college. Yeah, well, uh, we thought it'd be nice to uh, to start doing some recording again because we remembered how much we'd enjoyed doing it 25 years ago. And, uh, of course, technology now has changed completely. We're all scattered in different parts of the country, so we can't, we can't kind of reform and play together or anything like that. But you can, you know, you can bounce tracks backwards and forwards via email. So, so this is a band that's reformed. It's a, it's but a virtual still band. Not it's, a virtual band. it's a virtual <laughs> band. That's great. And uh, and of course you can you can just stick stuff online and uh, and do things that way. So it just just seemed the right moment to kind of do it again really. You don't have the equipment to play simultaneously, do you I assume? I went um, ten years ago to the flat in Covent Garden of Dave Stewart, formerly of Eurythmics oh, yeah. and uh, and now of virtually everything else. Super heavy in fact. Mm-hmm. And he demonstrated to me uh, a keyboard that he pulled out and a load of screens and he was playing live with a musician in South America in North America and somebody in Sweden mm. there was a four piece group playing but it wasn't That's quite extraordinary. It, was, it was extraordinary but it wasn't entirely satisfying because it wasn't quite synced yeah. actually it's bad enough actually there's four people in a room and they're not quite <laughs> on the beat but when one of them was actually in Florida or whatever <laughs> it was but I think he, he loved the idea of it possibly more than the, the, the actual you know sonic outcome yeah but you say you guys are just sending files back and forward and yeah, that's, that's that's more or less what we're doing. And uh, both Jeremy, the guitarist, and and I, we just uh, you know we love writing songs, and the fact that we haven't done that either of us for about twenty years, we just suddenly kind of felt a sort of song shaped hole in our in our lives. I think so. We thought it was. We should try doing it again. But you did take this very very seriously, didn't you? Because I think before you became a novelist, um, you were looking for a, 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 a record contract. I mean, quite, with a certain amount of ambition. With a certain amount of ambition and uh, and no sense at all of how to go about it, I think. How did you go about it? <laughs> uh, you know, just the, the, the... Probably the worst possible way of of getting 30 or 40 cassettes reproduced and putting them in jiffy bags and sending them to record labels and that kind of thing. So... Uh, we Where had, they would be used as, you know... You know, door, door. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly the same way I got published as a novelist, actually. But I was, I was one of the, the very few cases, I guess, where I actually got lucky in that in that case. And well, my, my manuscript manus- landed on the on the doorstep of someone who actually read manuscripts that landed on her doorstep. So that was uh, that was Anna Haycroft, also known as Alice Thomas Ellis, who uh, was the fiction editor of Duckworth at the time. How? And what an incredible piece of luck! So you well, did yeah. that without an agent. Yeah, I had, no, I didn't have an agent or anything like that at the time. So, yeah. 
Do what, what, what happened? She, she, she rang you up or she set you a postcard? Her, her husband, Colin Haycroft, who was the publisher at Duckworth, phoned me up four months after I'd sent off the manuscript. So four just, months just, of just, absolute I, silence. Had you sent off many manuscripts? Yeah, I sent, I sent off to about 15 or 16 people, I think, and, uh, you know, stopped really waiting for the replies because usually you didn't get a reply at all. And then the phone just rang one evening in my bed-sitting Coventry, which was where I was living at the time, and it was a very posh voice. I knew it was something special because I'd never... There was no voice like this in my, <laughs> in my social circle. He sounded like a retired colonel or something. And he just said, Hello, it's Colin Haycroft here. Anna loves your book. I think we'll publish it next year. Will that be all right? What an that was, See, that again yeah. only happens in movies. The best it? phone call ever, that is. It was, yeah. What an it incredible story. Ever, it, it's the phone call that should have happened at the end of Sideways, but never yes, does. Yes. The reverse, <laughs> in fact, happens. <laughs> how absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. And how long did it take between getting that call and uh, seeing your, your book in W.H. Well, Smith? Seen, uh, well, I never saw the book in W.H. Smith. Uh, but it seemed an age at the time, but actually it was quite quick. Now that I know a bit more about publishing, they did it in about six months. But they did it. It was a it was a, a slim uh, hardback volume which sold, and I remember this vividly because it's the kind of thing you don't forget. Two hundred and seventy-two copies. Two hundred and seventy-two copies, uh, and you would remember that. Uh, the rest were pulped, and I signed twenty of them. I remember. Um, Where did you sign them? In, in, in the Duckworth office, he said, sign these for collectors. And they and, will be uh, probably, course, probably see, worth yeah, quite I see them money. on eight books now, and they're about, they go for about £300. Do now. they? How yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> sensational. What a brilliant story. That's very good. And you also wrote, later on, um, some... Because I just wondered if you'd had some ambitions to be a, to be, to be a rock journalist. I mean, you wrote, you wrote written sleeve notes for, I think, for, for Hatfield of the North. And, oh, uh, well, I f- yeah, I forget... Uh, I think the High Lama. I forget some of this stuff, because I did... Uh, a part of my life I keep forgetting about is for about a year and a half in the early 90s, I was a music journalist for The Wire. Oh, well, I didn't know that. The very, uh, the very esoteric... Um, highbrow. Still going? Music magazine. Still going? Still going? Yeah. by Chris Bonner, see him yeah. on the bus. I think I had to stop buying it because I just didn't understand what they were writing or what they were writing about in the end. But I, I, I covered sort of more mainstream stuff for them. But I did a lot of nice... They gave me a lot of nice gigs. I did a great interview with Steve Reich, interviewed Michael Nyman, talked to... Was uh, the headline, Steve Reich in the afternoon? <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Um, How perfect you finished up on that magazine. The person who at school was listening to Henry Cow. Yes. His destiny, if he was going yeah, to go anywhere, well, it would to, be was, The Wire. Right for The Wire, yeah. yeah. Tragically, I don't think during my tenure there that members of Henry Cow made any recordings or played many gigs, cause I, so I never got the chance to. Uh, who who to were your write big interviews? Who, who you remember interviewing? Uh, Steve Reich, Michael Nyman, those were the two ones I mainly remember. A wonderful singer uh, who I still really rate. Uh, not many people have heard of her, called Annette Peacock. Do you know Annette Peacock? I do. Who made an album in the seventies called "I'm the One," which was a big influence on uh, on David Bowie. Actually, I think. Yeah. In fact, I think he even covered the the track. And uh, that was yeah, that was really nice spending an afternoon with her. So, um, so I did do the music journalist thing. I think I've written about I wrote about the Canterbury scene for the Guardian a couple of times as well. I think that sort of stuff. As as in the kind of the whole this would be caravan, the whole caravan soft machine and all soft machine sort of things. Yep. And and Pink Floyd, I suppose, part of that too. Yeah, very very tangentially. Is that the word? Tangentially. Tangentially. Yes. Could be. Could be. Might be. Kevin Ayers was he mentioned in your piece? I'm sure he was. Yeah, I'm sure he was. Yeah. What's the fascination with that particular period? Um, I think there's something about that music which 
uh, I realise now, in retrospect, you also find in my novels, or I try to put in my novels, which is uh, basically the music is unlike most progressive music or avant-garde music. It's actually quite accessible and very tuneful. Uh, and it has a humorous edge to it. It has a kind of ironic edge to it. But there are kind of quirky, experimental things happening around the edges. And that's that's kind of what I try to do uh, in in my novels, that, that you know, I, I want to reach a mainstream audience. I want to invite the reader in. I don't want to make the books difficult or inaccessible. But then once I've... Once I've got them, then I like to kind of throw the odd curveball, like the fact that the Rotter Club, for instance, uh, which for most of the book is a, is a kind of easy nostalgia trip down the 1970s, ends with a 33-page sentence, which, which you know, m- maybe... James Joyce would have been proud of. Yeah, and, and, and maybe, you know, people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't take that kind of thing on board if they hadn't been kind of let in a bit more gently by, by all the jokes and, and that sort of stuff. So, so I do think there's a, there's a kind of crossover between... What I'm trying to do in fiction and what a band like Hatfield and the North were trying to do in no, in I music. totally understand that, yeah. and I think that your, I think your use of musical references is just. I think you were one of the first to really do that. Actually, it's now become quite a, a standard procedure. Well, uh, in the same way as uh, movies will, will soundtrack or they will, will code a certain year by yeah. using a particular track that was a hit that year. It's a kind of shorthand for yeah. 1985 or whatever. Well, the Ross Club came out in 2001, and and High Fidelity is the is the first really that came out in 96. Six or ninety-seven, I think. Yeah. So, so Nick definitely uh, got there before me on that front. But, um, but I was certainly probably the first person to use references to Henry Cow as a, as a yes. means of uh, as a means of describing my character's emotional life or lack of it. Well, members of Henry Cow, and we indeed know one, Peter Blakefield. Peter Blakefield. We saw him play uh, yeah. uh, the, the other night. Yeah, we what an extraordinary we, evening! Absolutely that was. fantastic. Incredible. Describe describe Blakefield's performance. It was a wonderful show. Well, it was Peter's birthday. It was Peter Blakefield's 60th yeah. birthday yeah. party stroke concert, and uh, you know, at one point up on stage playing his songs, we had. Chris Cutler and John Greaves of Henry, the Henry Cow Rhythm Section, on, uh, and then we had Peter playing guitar and singing. We had Karen Mantler, Carla Blaze's daughter, on keyboards. Superb, yeah. And we had John Paul Jones just kind of vamping on, on va- mandolin. mandolin. Uh, you know, I never thought I would see those five people on stage together. It was just it was just wonderful. tremendous. Yeah, and, and really nice to see musicians now sitting down and looking at music stands. Yes. Reading, well, not actually charts, but clearly kind of uh, chord, chord and, patterns. Yes. I think yeah, the club were actually reading really music. Probably were, yeah. Yeah, now, we not enough of that. Yes, we we not enough at all. <laughs> now your um, event, which we we must rigorously plug, because yes, on must. Friday, the Oct- October the seventh, I think it is at King's Place, mm-hmm. you are uh, part of a performance called "Say Hi to the Rivers and Mountains." Yes. Now tell us about that because that's with I think you've worked with Sean O'Hagan before, who was in Micro Disney and I think High Llamas. Yep. God, he was on the Old Whistle Test. Were they Micro Disney? I think they were. Yeah, quite possibly. Lovely fellow, quite isn't he? Lovely fellow. Really. Now, what's your association with him? You've done quite a lot of stuff with I him. I have done quite a lot with Sean. Uh, this is a, uh, a weekend-long festival called Notes and Letters, which is devoted to collaborations between writers and musicians. Uh, we have Will Self giving a lecture on uh, symphonic form and literary form. We have uh, Peter Maxwell Davis, I believe, uh, giving Excellent. a lecture. And kicking the whole thing off on the Friday evening, Friday, October the 7th, we have the High Lamas in concert uh, with some words by me. And what we're doing is a, is a performance piece that we've uh, written together called Say Hi to the Rivers and the Mountains. Well, what you basically get is an hour-long High Lama set, which, uh, which I've chosen and programmed. We have 11 songs performed in sequence, uh, some of them songs, some of them instrumentals. And 
in and around this, I've written uh, what I would suppose you call a play. It's certainly a dialogue for three actors. Uh, all the dialogue is synced to the music, so the actors have to kind of speak in time to what the musicians are playing and listen to the musicians. It is quite I smell rehearsals. <laughs> it's, it's quite rehearsal intensive. It's quite rehearsal intensive. Uh, we have Henry Goodman playing the, uh, the lead part in the play, and uh, I hope he knows what he's let himself in for, because it is quite unlike what actors have to find themselves doing uh, most of the time. But uh, but we've done it. Yes. We've, we've we've performed it four or five times before, and uh, it is uh, it is a unique entertainment. I think what uh, I think of it as two hours entertainment because you get a, an hour long play an by me and an hour long yeah. set by the High Lamas. They just happen to be performed simultaneously. Fantastic. Did you yeah. do this at Latitude once or? We did it at Latitude. Like it? Yeah, yeah, no, we, we did, did at Latitude uh, two years ago. Two years ago, that's yep. right. Yep. Yeah, which was a, which was great fun actually. It was yeah. such a good festival. And uh, it actually it's the perfect venue for this kind of thing because you get such an interesting audience at Latitude. Any author will tell you if you do a reading or a, a literary event at Latitude, it's just great because you get... Fantastically open-minded. Fantastically open-minded. Yeah. Four or five hundred people all in a tent. And, you know, it's really so much more fun than doing, you know, uh, a bog-standard literary festival. So you're, uh, I could almost say, an, an evangelist for this kind of thing, and there isn't much of it. This kind of these combinations of words and music this is very, it's very unusual. Why do you feel so strongly that you'd uh, that you'd like to get involved with this? Uh, I think it goes back again to my weird personal obsessions in the in the 1970s, uh, which which in those days, uh, from, among other things, were with film music. Because uh, okay, cast yourself, cast your mind back to the 1970s. I'm a I'm a Billy Wilder obsessive. And I've uh, I've started to want to possess all his films. Of course, there's no videotapes yet, so I record them off the television onto audio cassettes, and then I lie awake in bed. So at you've night got a terrible version of, of "Some Like It Hot" or something on it's a, a very on good a, version because it's done on a line. It's oh, done right. by the cable. It's not, yeah. I'm not holding a mic in front of the TV. Yeah. So I have a perfect kind of audio recording of it. So what I'm listening to entirely and focusing on is the way that the voices. Uh, interweave with and intermingle with the the soundtrack music, so I become very interested in in what certain kinds of music, certain chords, even do when you put them behind certain bits of dialogue and and this sort of thing. How fascinating! And I think I think that's. But, those, but they weren't they weren't synced, were they? Billy Wilder uses uses atmosphere music, doesn't he? Um, actually, when you when well, there are there are songs. Sometimes when you when you. If you listen closely to how it's used in Some Like It Hot, for instance, there is almost a kind of dialogue going on between the, the soundtrack music and the, and the actual dialogue, I think. Uh, how extraordinary. You must have listened to that many times. You yeah. clearly did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the way that sometimes different characters' themes recur in, in kind of ironic forms on the soundtrack, and depending on who is speaking at that time, it, it, it makes, a, makes a... When you listen to it closely undistracted by the images it makes a vast difference to uh, to how how you hear the the dialogue that's fascinating and, all, and also it, it it is a kind of um uh dare one say a kind of subconscious engineering isn't it is yes it, you're not yeah, aware absolutely. of it you know see i'm i'm not aware yeah i'll go back to that film which i absolutely yeah. adore and watch yeah. that again with that in mind when you I'm, do become aware of it says I, i'm a bit too self-conscious about it now and actually when i when i when i listen to the way music is used in the in the cinema these days, first of all, uh, you know, ninety percent of it is terrible music, and and uh, you, I don't like it on that level. But also, it's begun to seem quite strange. Actually, the strange convention that we all accept that we're, we're kind of watching a movie, and people are in a room talking to each other, and suddenly, 
you know, there's an orchestra playing, and, and we kind of accept that because we're conditioned to. But when you become aware of it, it's kind of weird, and it can... Yes, it's, you put it like that, it's ludicrous. It is ludicrous. What exactly? And it become, actually becomes very distracting, which is, which is why I kind of liked the idea that in the collaboration with, with Sean and the High Lamas, we, we would actually write something where the relationship between words and music was, was specific and was, and was there from the beginning. Because what I think doesn't work so well is to is to take a pre-existing text and to slap a piece of music on it, which some uh, kind of manufacturers of audiobooks and Kindle apps and so on are doing at the moment. I don't know if you've you've heard about this, but they've started taking kind of Sherlock Holmes stories, and when it gets creepy and atmospheric, they've started. In putting, comes the orchestra. In comes the orchestra. Which is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> yes. Don't we don't want. And I don't think you really want that when you're when you're reading it. And if the if the writer had never imagined that to start with, then it's kind of doing a kind of violence to the text. I, I see. I object to that kind of thing very strongly on principle. Yeah. I think I'm just too old to, to have someone try and order my thoughts and my reactions. Exactly. I, exactly. I think but I'd you like accept to... it in the cinema. Yeah. You're well, you don't necessarily accept it, do you? It's no. It's thrust upon you. It's thrust, it is thrust upon you. But there was a vogue not long ago for trying to do this stuff without any music at all. It's kind of... this kind dogma. Of, yes, yeah, brave kind of uh, new convention where, uh, you know, we've got to treat our audience as being grown up enough to be yeah. able to, to sort the yeah. stuff out for themselves. Or if you see uh, Louis Brunel's later films, which are fantastic, he was, of course, completely deaf by this point, so he, he never bothered to put any music on his, great his excuse. final films. <laughs> I can't hear it. Why should <laughs> <Yes. anybody else? laughs> Very good. Well, look, Jonathan, that's fantastic. This, this show, let's plug this again, and we will plug this vigorously on the website too, yeah. on Friday, October the 7th, at King's Place, which I can't remember King's Place is now, actually. I've been just down the road from here. It's the Guardian Building. Of course yeah. it is. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's you and various others and Sean O'Hagan. And, yeah. uh, and we must play, sorry, I completely forgot to play, we must play <laughs> the peer group. Now, just <laughs> b- briefly, you sent me um, an email yesterday saying that you were responsible, I think, for the music on tracks one and tracks four. Uh, track one, I think it's called Life is the Kingdom. Would that be is right? it the Kingdom? It's called. Is yep. it the Kingdom? Sorry. And the other one's called, I think, Travel's Cup and Lip. Yep. Now, you can introduce the easiest way <laughs> you will introduce those. I listened to them this morning. With, that there is, I have to say, an almost loungish jazz feel to them, mm. which I was uh, interested by. Was that the group? That's what you sent to well, like, uh, college. We haven't, uh, yeah, we haven't talked about my love of lounge music, no, which is something we completely different. We're different. about to hear what is. I mean, I heard that and immediately thought, please, somebody send two mackerel pâtés and a Caesar salad. <laughs> To, to table 27 <laughs> but it was quite lounge now tell yeah. me about your interest in that which track are we going to well you which choose the track like? it's up to you you can try one or three or four because you're, you're um, the composers of both yeah um, which would you like to introduce well let's let's hear the first track which is called Is It The Kingdom is the which King- I think has a slightly early Steely Dan feel to it actually I think it's quite piano heavy and uh, I think that's the kind of feel we're going for on this um, but maybe you didn't pick that up at all. No, I <laughs> think I did. Steely Dan had a, yeah. have a tremendously uh, uh, lounge thing, but only more later on, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if, if you stuck with them, as I did, and up until their um, uh, the, the reunion record. And also mm. the Don- Donald Fagan's sensational solo albums, Nightfly. Mm-hmm. These are great records. Yeah. Yep. Um, but we, I think uh, we, we're going to do a proper, proper Radio 2 thing here, Fraser. <laughs> we're going to thank uh, Jonathan Cove very much for being on this podcast <laughs> and thank everyone for listening. Replug the date on October the 7th and we're going to leave you now, listeners, with the peer group and uh, a little bit of... Uh, which track was it again? It's called Is It The Kingdom? It's a, it's a song uh, our drummer, uh, Ralph, has written uh, inspired by the death of his father. And uh, his his thoughts, his rather elegiac thoughts, I think, uh, about the kind of uh, country that he thought 
he was building in the, the kind of post-war consensus years and what that turned into post-1979. And you're not the singer, you're the keyboard player on this. I am the keyboard player. So what's the lineup? Is there's, there's, there's the singer, the drummer? Piano, guitar, drums, uh, bass and vocals. Yeah. Listeners, we give you the peer group. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent every month. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 